This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, Weekend Warriors of Michigan Politics and Government. We have already got our first guest on the line, and he is Scott Greenlee. He is president of Greenlee Consulting. He's a former vice chairman of the Michigan Republican Party. Scott Greenlee, thanks for being our guest. Hey, always a pleasure. Good to, uh, good to have the opportunity, Bill. Well, look, uh, I'd like you to describe, you know, what does Greenlee Consulting do? do? Uh, how long have you been in existence? You've got some other interesting things in your background I'll get into in a minute, but go ahead. Well, thanks. Um, yeah, we are a full-service uh, political consulting firm, but we also do uh, a lot of corporate projects, uh, particularly in the off years, uh, the non-election years. Um, so, so I've had the opportunity to work with candidates literally from uh, the city commission slash uh, county commission level all the way up through uh, taking uh, projects and roles for candidates for uh, president of the United States. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a real opportunity and a real uh, fun thing that always keeps me uh, uh, jumping around. There's no getting bored when you're, you know, in a meeting uh, during the, uh, the political years on a U.S. congressional race, and then you jump to a state rep race, and then you jump to helping oversee a state senator and, and what have you. So it's uh, it's good in that regard, but uh, also the corporate work is is uh, important and something I have a passion for. I have an entrepreneurial mindset, and uh, that certainly creeps into the the political realm uh, in terms of how I try and and advise clients and and uh, oversee campaigns. Uh, but it's nice to uh, to do the regular uh, uh, business stuff as well. I've got corporate clients throughout Michigan and work with them in a variety of uh, uh, things from. Uh, talent acquisition to corporate restructuring to uh, budgets and and how we uh, we make them more profitable, which is a variety of ways in the corporate marketplace. So it's uh, it's it's good, and I'm blessed to, to have a good network and and a lot of opportunity. Scott Greenley, you mentioned you have an entrepreneurial mindset, and I think you've got an interesting background with the JCs, don't you? Could you describe that a little bit? Yeah, so the JCs, or Junior Chamber International, is a uh, young person's leadership development group uh, in Michigan, uh, 21 to 40-year-olds. They throw you out at 40 because it's, again, designed for uh, the younger adult. But uh, really, you know, kind of an unofficial motto of the group is, is leadership development through community service. There's probably 30 or 40 chapters around Michigan, and uh, I was lucky enough to join the Grand Rapids one and, and be president of that way back in 1996. And then was elected the state president of the JCs in 2001, and then got a crazy idea that because JCs is a uh, global organization in about 125 countries worldwide, uh, with around 200,000 active members between the ages of you know up to 40 and, and and then millions of alumni, that the international thing was was interesting to me, and I got very active internationally. Did a lot of travel. Wound up being the world president of the JCs in 2007. And uh, what, what that allowed me to do is build up a network of business and political contacts in roughly 100 countries, which later in life led me to form a uh, partnership with a uh, group of, of uh, business people and, and political leaders in the Philippines. There's, there's five of us that are 
part of the company. Uh, it's Advantage Management Consulting Philippines, Inc., and we've got a former uh, cabinet secretary as our uh, managing partner. We've got a, a member of Congress and then a couple of, of private business people and myself. And we do everything from political consulting over there to uh, utilizing Asia, uh, uh, utilizing the Philippines as a great Asian uh, market entry opportunity for uh, businesses that want to expand, whether you're targeting business in the Philippines or rather you want to get to uh, some of the emerging markets like Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, whether you want to tackle China, whether you want to go into South Korea. It's very helpful to start in a country that is very American-friendly, that has American banks where you can go down and open your account at Bank of America or Chase or what have you, where we have legal resources and accounting resources that have been trained in the United States and worked in the United States, actually, that we position with clients so that a company can establish themselves as an Asian uh, uh, company and then expand throughout that market from there. So, so we've had some good success, and we're always, uh, we're always trying to do more. Scott Greenlee, have you spent a lot of time physically in the Philippines? I have, yeah. Not recently, unfortunately, because of COVID, but uh, I would do typically uh, three, uh, maybe four trips a year for a week to 10 days, um, you know, centered around the Philippines. But then I would also have the opportunity while over there to make a quick trip to, uh, to other countries and, you know, pursue opportunities or actually take a vacation day or two here, there, and, uh, and, and golf. So, yeah, I've, I've traveled in Asia uh, quite extensively, as well as Europe, Africa, South America. Yeah, one candidate last year that must have caught your eye and been attractive to you because of her very successful business career was Lisa McLean. Yeah. And Lisa McLean um, decided she wanted to run for Congress over in the 10th Congressional District, which is the Thumb area. It has uh, northern Macomb County. It has most of Tuscola County. It has all of Huron, Sanilac, Lapeer, and St. Clair counties. And there was an open seat because the incumbent, Paul Mitchell, decided uh, after two terms uh, down in Washington, he didn't like it too much down there. (laughs) He wanted to get out, so it was an open seat. And she had two very formidable opponents, Brigadier General Doug Slocum and State Representative Shane Hernandez, Chairman of the House Appropriations Committee. And frankly, uh, I was a little bit uh, surprised at the way Lisa McLean uh, kind of uh, shot to front runner status and then won uh, this race. Uh, you were advising her. Tell us about that. Well, Lisa is a incredible individual. She is a, a, a dynamic business leader, somebody who literally um, um, fought her way from uh, very humble beginnings in, uh, in southern uh, Michigan, uh, growing up on a farm and doing uh, um, everything she could to, to get through uh, high school and, and develop a good work ethic and uh, a bunch of odd jobs and wound up getting uh, to work in uh, financial services and was part of a team that became the first team literally in, in American Express uh, history to uh, top uh, a billion in sales in a year uh, out, of, out of Metro Detroit, the team that, that she connected with. And then that team went to American Express, as she tells it, and says, uh, you know, look, we've got some things we think we can do differently, some things we've discovered, you know. And, and American Express, to their credit, said, 
look, guys, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. We've got a pretty successful thing going here, so we're, we're going we're gonna to continue with our model. And Lisa and, and three or four uh, other people initially said, you know what, we're just going to leave then and we're going to do things on our own and, and start our own company. So they started uh, uh, their own firm, uh, literally with zero clients, with uh, zero employees, um, with no revenue. And uh, 24 years later, you know, they're, they're a company that has billions in assets. They've got over 20 locations around the state of Michigan, about 700 current employees, and uh, they've employed thousands. So she was uh, senior vice president of that company and uh, led uh, a number of their other initiatives, their foundation and what have you. So she's definitely somebody who can get things done and has real-life experience. And when she approached me about running, um, uh, I, was, I was immediately impressed with her story, with her background, with her uh, solid conservative views, which are important in that district. And uh, I felt that she had uh, a very good chance to, uh, to win, uh, again, if she put in the work. And she put in a tremendous amount of work during the, uh, the campaign and didn't allow the virus to, uh, to be an excuse. For example, she uh, made hours and hours and hours of personal live phone calls to, uh, to registered voters in the district. Um, you, you know, because she, she just tapped into her financial services background when she was getting started, when she'd have to spend you know, six hours a day on the phone. So for her, it wasn't a problem. She worked hard. She had an effective message. She's got a great background. And uh, she's, she's doing a great job uh, in Washington, and I expect that she'll continue to do a great job. Yeah, listen, uh, we want to continue with the Lisa McLean story in a moment, but we got to take a quick break. We will be back. Stay tuned with Scott Greenlee. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned with Scott Greenlee, who is president of Greenlee Consulting, and he was a senior consultant to Lisa McLean when she ran for Congress successfully last year in the 10th Congressional District over in the Thumb area, northern Macomb County. Uh, she won a three-candidate primary over two formidable opponents. And uh, near the end of the campaign, I remember uh, Paul Mitchell, the outgoing congressman who decided to give up his seat after two terms, creating the open seat that Lisa McLean was running for, came out and endorsed Shane Hernandez, the state representative who was one of Lisa's opponents. And yet Lisa McLean was able to overcome that. And of course, she had to deal with uh, the presence of Donald Trump and traditional Republican approaches to issues over there. I mean, how did she negotiate all of that, Scott Greenlee? Well, you know, it was uh, uh, a challenge with a number of the elected officials. In fact, pretty much all of the elected officials uh, endorsing uh, Shane, uh, who's a good guy and, uh, and somebody that I've always liked. Um, and then, of course, Congressman Mitchell came out, and really the only the only state level elected official that was on our team uh, was Pete Lacido, who's who's known Lisa through uh, Macomb County uh, activities for uh, for years. So 
so he was with her, but but everybody else was was pretty solidly against her. Um, she got in the race a little late. I think that had something to do with it. She was also a blank sheet of paper. She had never been involved in in politics. She'd never attended a Republican meeting or uh, you know been a, a key clog in anybody's uh, uh, campaign. Um, so so she was a a blank which always raises questions. Is this person really conservative? Is this person, you know, going to really vote in the interests of, of uh, our district and, and, you know, in a conservative manner and support the president, which is important in that district? So Lisa, you know, from day one, just as, as she put it, you know, very simply, if, if you always tell the truth, you don't have to remember your story. And she pointed out that she's very solidly conservative. She's very um, supportive of the president's results and, and what was going on from a metric standpoint with uh, with the country. Um, and and she continued to, to bring that to the forefront. And I think in this day and age, especially in Michigan, if you take a look over the last decade, Michigan is voters are, are getting more and more fond of people that have real life experience. You look at Governor Snyder winning in 2010 with no political experience uh, starting at the level of governor. You look at Donald Trump winning Michigan in 2016 with no uh, political experience. Uh, first time that had happened, a Republican nominee had won since 1988, if memory serves me, with George H.W. Bush. And you look at Lisa McLean. Voters like somebody who've actually accomplished things in the private sector who've signed the front of the check, not just the back of the check, because they realize those people have budget experience. Those people have uh, experience dealing with, with very difficult um, expansion and growth and, you know, challenging issues uh, uh, who've had the opportunity to work with, with large organizations or, in Lisa's case, having built a large organization. So the more that people got to know her, um, the, the easier sale that it was to take a look at her and, and say, yeah, she's different. She's bringing something uh, that's, that's tangible in a different way than the average political candidate. And, and frankly, we like her and we like her energy and we believe her when she says she's going to go to Washington and, and she's going to, you know, develop a conservative voting record, which she didn't have because she wasn't in office. And certainly taking a look at the first three months of her service, she's done that. She's been accessible. She's done six in-person town halls. Uh, she's hired a, a great staff, uh, a great team of people supporting her. Um, she, she's kind of the energizer bunny and the fact that she's literally working all day and all night every day. Um, I'll get calls from her at 11 o'clock at night. I'll get calls from her at 6 in the morning. Um, she, she accomplishes a great deal. And everything that I've seen since, since I got the chance to know her tells me that that energy is never going to slow down in her desire to uh, successfully represent the people of the temple. Okay, Scott Greenlee, she won the primary, she won the general election in a solidly Republican district, and you've been in touch with her. That's interesting to me. That's what I was going to ask you since she's been elected, and uh, you get the feeling that she hasn't been disillusioned yet like her predecessor, <laughs> Paul Mitchell. She hasn't de- decided, well, what What have I gotten myself into? <laughs> no, she, uh, you, you know, she's tough. She's, she's scrappy. She's a fighter. Um, you know, everything that she's done in, in her life, um, uh, she's certainly taken, you know, the idea that if it's easy, everybody will do it. So I'm going to do the tough stuff. And that's shown in business, shown in uh, philanthropy with the amount of, of charitable groups and nonprofit groups that she's not only donated to, but organized and worked with and raised money for. Um, you know, she's she's a great wife and, and a great mom to four uh, kids, all of whom are uh, excelling and uh, and successful. 
So uh, she's she's ready for for tough stuff, and Washington is pretty tough right now. And is it frustrating? For sure, you know. Um, but if it was easy, anybody could do it. And and she's gonna gonna keep her head down, and she's gonna work hard, and she's gonna maintain her conservative principles as well as take a look at the best way to serve each and every person in Michigan 10, and beyond that, each person in the state of Michigan with her votes and 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 America. And uh, she won't she won't be deterred easily. That's for sure. She worked a long time in business and uh, decided it was time to give back. And you know, looked at the country and said, "There's a lot of things that need to be fixed." And uh, rolled her sleeves up and, and is ready for it. So three months in, she's uh, she's doing a great job and she's excited to maintain the pace. Yeah, you know, the longer you talk about Lisa McLean, Scott Greenlee, I'm I'm thinking several things here. Number one. Uh, we've got reapportionment coming up, uh, redistricting with this independent commission. Nobody knows how the district lines are going to be drawn for 2022. Right. We're going to lose a congressional seat. Uh, she's in the minority, Lisa McLean, in Washington. Can't be sure the Republicans are going to get it back in 2022. And I remember back in 1982, there was a situation where Michigan was losing a congressional seat and a congressman named Jim Blanchard said, well, you know what? I'll just run for governor. (laughs) Now, what about Lisa McLean if the lines are drawn in such a way that it's going to be very hard for her to get reelected? Maybe they'll run her district into Flint or down into uh, deeper southeast Michigan, including uh, Democratic areas in uh, southern Macomb and even Wayne. And she just decides, I'm going to run for governor. I, could that happen? I, I mean, anything could happen, I suppose. But uh, her and I haven't really discussed that. Uh, I saw that, you know, her name has floated around a, a couple lists. And uh, I think she considers that flattering. But, you know, she's she's just into Washington right now. She definitely wants to make a difference. Um, you know, she's a fighter. I think if uh, redistricting is not favorable to her, um, you know, you might see her roll her sleeves up and say, okay, how do we get this done? How do we, you know, um, um, best convince uh, uh, over half the voters of this new district that this is the way to go? And you talk about um, the minority-majority situation. The Republicans, in a in a difficult national year, at least from a perception standpoint, did quite well if you look a little bit below the top of the ticket, getting, I believe, within five of controlling the House of Representatives. Looking at the maps, I'm optimistic Republicans could very well be in majority in uh, 2023. Well, listen, uh, Scott Greenlee, I wanted to talk to you about so many more things, but Lisa McLean has just dominated this, and you've done a great job explaining her trajectory into prominence. Thank you so much, Scott Greenlee, who is president of Greenlee Consulting. We'll have to get you back and get into uh, some of this other stuff, like the Michigan Republican Party going forward. How about that? I look forward to it, Bill, anytime. Okay. We'll be back in a minute with another guest. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, and we are very lucky to have with us Patrick L. Anderson, who is principal and CEO of Anderson Economic Group. Thank you, Patrick Anderson, for being our guest. Uh, Glad to join you, Bill. Okay. Patrick Anderson founded Anderson Economic Group in 1996, and it's become one of the most recognized boutique consulting firms in the United States in the past two decades. 
Anderson Economic Group consultants have helped to establish the Michigan Earned Income Tax Credit, repeal the single business tax, reform Michigan's property tax laws, alert the state to the dangers of invasive species, and call attention to the funding needed to repair roads and bridges. Now, recently, Patrick Anderson wrote an article entitled, How Much is $1 Trillion? And in the article, he starts out by asking or saying, and I'm quoting here, the American Rescue Plan, that's the $1.9 trillion plan, will result in most Americans getting another round of stimulus checks. Michigan citizens should do three things before they spend their stimulus. Understand just how much we just spent, push our state to use the money wisely, and guard against the federal government taking away our own powers. So, Patrick Anderson, I'd just like you to maybe elaborate on that a little bit. First of all, you asked the obvious question, how much is $1 trillion? Yeah, $1.9 trillion, I pointed out, this is more money than everyone in an entire continent makes in a year. So it's more than everyone (laughs) in the entire continent of Australia makes in the entire year. It's five times what every single person, man, woman, and child, makes in the state of Michigan in a year. Uh, It's an enormous amount of money, and this is on top of all the other money we spend, including the CARES Act, in a a country where we're already running a deficit and already had a substantial national debt. So it is an enormous amount of money, and it is not free. Uh, regardless of what you might read in, uh, say, the Green New Deal resolution, you can't just make this money up. Uh, You have to pay it back. It either comes out in inflation or in taxes, and that's what we indebted ourselves for. So first thing to know when you get that check is look at it hard because you're paying for it. Well, you then ask the second question, what will our elected officials do with the money? That's a darn good question. I'll, I'll, I'll bring up Michigan because uh, Anderson Economic Group, like lots of others, warned early on, especially when these lockdowns took, took effect in Michigan, uh, almost exactly a year ago. It was March 24th when we had the emergency order, the first emergency order when it was an emergency uh, that basically put people out of work, said, go home. We have an emergency. We had to, we had to send people home right now and tough it out the next, you know, the next 28 days, flatten the curve. Uh, bite the bullet for a short amount of time. That was the discussion at the time. We said this will cause, at least temporarily, near-depression-level unemployment and great loss in tax revenue. Well, it did for a short amount of time. And then we got a huge infusion of federal funds, and a lot of the, the money that came in in the CARES Act was taxed. So, ironically, it ended up with Michigan, the state of Michigan, getting more tax revenue, not less more tax revenue once you count the federal dollars and the taxes on the federal supplements. So that's good for the federal, for the state government. We were able to actually end the year with a surprising additional amount of money. We now have another, I think, $10 billion coming our way. So just from this American Rescue Plan. So the question here is, what are we going to do with that? Are we going to waste it? Are we going to spend it on boondoggles? Are we just going to increase salaries and hire more people? Are we going to be sending out press releases congratulating ourselves? Or are we going to fix roads, uh, fix the water infrastructure, deal with problems that we've had for a long time that we haven't addressed, uh, including under this particular administration, which ran on fixing the roads? So this is the second question and one that I hope uh, all of our 
all of our listeners are asking, what are we going to do with that additional money? Are we going to spend it wisely? Are we going to blow it? Uh, Absolutely. Uh, Then you ask a third question, uh, which you say should not be taken lightly. You say that this $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan includes a direct assault on the independence of Michigan and other states. What do you mean by that? Buried in this in this uh, gigantic bill with even more gigantic spending is a provision that purports to tell states, if you take some of this money, then you cannot change your tax policies in a way that will reduce tax revenue during the covered period, which is not just one year. So if you read that literally, it says, remember all those legislators you elected? Remember that governor you elected? You thought they were making your budget? Well, actually, the United States Congress was uh, determining what you could spend and how much you could tax. So uh, this is something that is going to be challenged. Uh, I'm going to be asking our state officials to be formally uh, challenging this because Uh, It is a direct assault, not just on Michigan, but on other states. I mean, we in the United States of America, we're called the United States of America because we as states formed a national government. It wasn't a national government that appointed us as their vassals. Uh, (laughs) And uh, we as states need to insist that we have our sovereignty and that we're making the decisions and that we're following our own state constitution. And that's something I'm alerting. Very few people know about it now. Uh, I'm sure more people will know about it in the future. But it's something that we should we should take action on right now before uh, it ever gets embedded in anybody's mind that we have to ask Washington permission before we follow our own constitution. I see a lot of litigation coming to challenge this idea that the federal government could tell states that you cannot change your tax structure. I mean, this could go on for a long time. Remember, there were portions of Obamacare that were struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court as being unconstitutional, right? Uh, absolutely. And this uh, the, that's one of the reasons I'm, I'm urging, and I'm going to be doing it formally, uh, Bill, to challenge this right now so that we, our legislature, our governor can say, we're going to follow our constitution. Uh, and we're not going to sit here and go, oh, we can't do these things because we have to ask the Congress's permission. Uh, I don't want that out there. And I don't want it, it, this to be used as a fig leaf to cover the embarrassment of mismanaging state finances by saying, well, we'd like to do the right thing, but uh, we can't because the law won't let us. Uh, and, and at the same time, I don't want us to say, hey, we can't take some of this $10 billion that's been showered on us and that we're going to have to pay taxes to cover because we're worried that this means that the, you know, the United States Congress is now at a whim deciding our tax policies. So that's, that's a reason why uh, I'm, I'm suggesting we challenge this and we join other states because I'm sure others will challenge it as well. Yeah, looking uh, at the big picture here, the national debt, which you alluded to briefly earlier, uh, we already had a monster, historically high national accumulated debt over many, many decades. And now you pile $1.9 trillion on top of that. I mean, things are seemingly totally out of control with the national debt. If you look back to the debate we had just two decades ago at the turn of the century about how do we balance the budget, we actually had two straight years where we balanced the federal budget around 1999, year 2000, and then we were hit with uh, 9-11, Iraq, Afghanistan, the Great Recession, 
And then over the last four years, Donald Trump and the Republicans who in Washington, I've got to say, they're supposed to be the party of fiscal integrity, seem to have uh, forgotten about balancing the budget. And then COVID-19 hit, and here we are. Absolutely, uh, Bill. And, and it's worth noting that under President Bill Clinton and Republican Congress with Newt Gingrich, we had a balanced budget in the United States of America in recent memory. It is possible, and it's possible with Democrats and Republicans. Uh, and we, we, do, uh, are, we are reaching, you know, historical, world historical bounds where you can't identify other countries that didn't collapse, that did things like this. And unfortunately, you can identify other countries in the past that did do things like this where they collapsed. Uh, and I'm not predicting the United States is going to collapse, but you can't look at this and say these aren't serious warning signs. And again, as you pointed out, we had a serious debt problem and we had a, risk, and we had a deficit before we spent this $1.9 trillion. Right. Well, listen, we got to take a short break, but we're going to come back and talk some more about this inflection point in history that we're at right now with Patrick Anderson, principal and CEO of Anderson Economic Group. Stay tuned. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned with Patrick Anderson. He's principal and CEO of Anderson Economic Group. Uh, we do seem to be at what might be called an inflection point in history. A lot of terrible things have been going on the last few years, principal among them, obviously, COVID-19. But uh, the fiscal crisis that I would contend has been going on for decades and certainly was considered to be a monster problem, an issue back in the late 1990s that forced the president at that time, Bill Clinton, a Democrat and a Republican Congress to address it and balance the budget at least for one year and then a second year right around the turn of the century. And that's about the only time uh, it's happened in recent memory. And it's never happened since. All that's happened since is the accumulated national debt, which by the turn of the century, Patrick Anderson, you know better than I, but it, it looks like a pygmy compared to what we've got right now. I mean, we're up to almost $30 trillion, I believe. So what is going on? How can we get things under control again? Uh, Bill, you raise a really good question, and, and the one I'm raising is that you, you, you cannot find many historical parallels of a country that was not in wartime, that indebted itself to spend money on its own citizens yeah. and survived. And that's part of the, 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 the problem here, because the historical analogy you have to this kind of spending by the federal government is World War II, where we're fighting for national survival and we're fighting against worldwide evil. And, you know, conservatives and liberals, uh, Republicans and Democrats agreed we have to fight this war. Uh, and, and we're willing to indebt ourselves for a generation or two generations to do it. Uh, and, you know, that was the right thing to do. It was the moral thing to do. And it was the right thing to do. We are indebting ourselves now to send money to our own citizens. Uh, and as I point out in the article, nine-tenths of this money, nine-tenths, 90 percent, goes to middle-class and upper-middle-class people. This is not a program where we said, hey, let's help the needy 
and we'll, you know, the rest of us will tighten our belt. There's a tenth of the money, and when you're talking about uh, $1.9 trillion, one-tenth is a very large amount, uh, but about a tenth of it goes to what I would consider things that are helping working poor and poor people. Things like the earned income tax credit, which you mentioned, uh, I was part of getting the earned income tax credit in Michigan. I'm in favor of that. Uh, part of expanding uh, health insurance, including expanding Obamacare, expanded Medicare, the child tax credit, which helps a lot of working poor and middle-class families and lower middle-class families. If you add all of that up and round up, you get to about one-tenth. The other 90% is mostly going to middle-class, upper-middle-class, large, wealthy organizations. Uh, people that make $100,000, $150,000 a year are getting checks. Uh, on top of, in many cases, having more money to flow into employers, including state governments that tend to pay their employees more than the average. So it's really hard to come up with a historical analogy of a country that indebted itself deeply to shower money essentially on the, you know, not the most needy, but the doing okay and even the affluent citizens of its society. That's a real warning sign. It's very surprising uh, to hear you say that in the sense that uh, the Democratic majority in the Congress and President Joe Biden, of course, are making the argument this is really to help the working poor. This is really to help low-income people. And you're saying only about 10 percent of it is really going to help those people. And Uh, it's completely misleading. Uh, And uh, go ahead. I mean, I'm just shaking my head here because, I mean, like you, Bell, I, I look at politics, and I, I remember in 2000, obviously, it wasn't that long ago, uh, and there was a traditional debate between Democrats and Republicans, and I'll say liberals and conservatives, and there was a bleeding-heart conservative uh, kind of group that helped bring in things like the Earned Income Tax Credit uh, and changing the tax policy to make it less onerous for people that, are, that were entering the workforce, and particularly working poor. And, and we did reach that consensus. And to Bill Clinton's credit, he was part of that. Uh, Ronald Reagan and, and both some Republicans and Democrats, including in Michigan, when we got the earned income tax credit added into our state tax policy. But this doesn't have any real guiding principle about helping the poor. I mean, you spent $1.9 trillion and rounding up, rounding up, you get maybe 10% of this going to people and not all poor people, I mean, just working poor and some kind of middle-class people. Everything you can identify as helping folks at the lower end of the economic ladder adds up to one-tenth. The rest of it is just sending money to, I mean, the biggest chunk, sending money to state and local governments, actually sending them to state governments. Uh, and, you know, money that's checks going to people who filed income tax returns declaring household income of $150,000 a year. Well, the average Michigan person, the average Michigan household makes about $52,000 a year. So we're talking in our own state about, you know, double the average household getting stimulus checks. Well, you say uh, you say conservatives are obviously concerned, but should liberals and Democrats be concerned about the national debt, too? Uh, absolutely, they should. I mean, first of all, you know, liberals and Democrats are Americans, too, uh, and uh you know, if we want to we want to support an active, effective government at the federal level, an active, effective government at the at the state level, if we want to protect civil rights, if we want to protect the environment, if we want to have a public education system, you can't bankrupt yourself. And, you know, you're fooling yourself if you believe that we can 
spend ourselves, you know, unbelievably into debt, and it won't affect our ability to fund those kind of programs in the future. It will. Um, and then next, I mean, don't you think, I mean, I do. I mean, politics has a way of coming back and biting the party that did foolish things. And, you know, we have recent lessons on this bill, recent lessons, you know, of, of foolish things that were punished by the voters. Uh, and they'll punish Republicans, they'll punish Democrats, and they'll, they'll punish people who, who uh, jump in and say things that are ridiculous but sound good at the time. And uh, I, I fear that we've, we've got ourselves in a situation where we're spending unbelievable amounts of money with the, the thinnest of possible explanations. Well, do you think uh, the Democrats and uh, President Joe Biden believe that this particular $1.9 trillion is going to jumpstart the economy to such an extent that it'll kind of half pay for itself at least, if not wholly? Or, or you think they're planning to raise taxes? I mean, what— Otherwise, if it doesn't jumpstart the economy beyond what the economy would recover to even without this, uh, as you say, we're just going to drive ourselves deeper into a hole we'll never get out of. You know, Bill, normally you'd see for something that was, say, a quarter this size, uh, months of debate, uh, you know, a carefully reasoned uh, argument, arguments on the other side, analyses. This whole thing went from speech to law in a very short amount of time. And one of the few places that you can see that one-tenth is, you know, in, in my column, uh, the Tax Foundation did analysis, for example, on the state, on the fund to state, funding to state governments, that it, it, uh, the funding that will go to state governments will be 116 times their revenue losses in 2020, 116 times. Wow. So you didn't have... Uh, you know, there's not a real clear guiding principle here, and there's not a real clear explanation. And it was called the American Rescue Plan. And people like me are saying, okay, one-tenth of it actually do help people who need it. But, you know, where's the consensus on that? And I think that's part of the problem with the way this was adopted. And I'll say this, you know, as somebody, sometimes I will, I'm, I'm in favor of legislation sometimes, too. Uh, and I, I want to see a healthy debate. And then, of course, I'd like good policies to be adopted, even if it's by narrow voting. But this was just went from speech to bill to law in like, two weeks and uh, with numbers that are just astounding. Well, do you, do you see uh, Biden and the Democratic Congress deciding, well, we're going to have to somehow raise taxes to get some of this money back? <laughs> Bill, actually, it wasn't even a week. It was not seven days after this was signed into law, that in the same manner that the original idea came up, there was a, a, uh, an, a you know, idea came out, and it was in the Wall Street Journal, and it was in Bloomberg, that the Biden administration is planning a $2 trillion tax increase. So, <laughs> so, I, so it's not free money a, after all. There's a nice all. LinkedIn post from me where I'm saying, like, if I was still back at the University of Michigan, and I said, Professor <laughs> of Economics, what is the theory behind borrowing 1.9 trillion sending it mostly to your own citizens and then taxing them 2 trillion dollars what where's the keynesian <laughs> model here that makes that work <laughs> he would laugh at me right and everyone oh ho, ho, no one would ever do that well we might do that this year yeah absolutely listen uh we could go on and on about this but you've given a great overview of the situation as a result of the passage of the american 
Get Well Quick plan, uh, $1.9 trillion. Thank you, Patrick Anderson, Principal and CEO of Anderson Economic Group, for being our guest. Take care, Bill. We'll be back next week with still more.